Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, June 14th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, commentary contributing editor, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, uh, columnist for the New York Times, Brett Stevens. Hi, Brett. John, nice to see you. Nice to see all of you. Now, Brett, as many of you listening uh, probably know, Brett was for several years the editor of the Jerusalem Post uh, before uh, returning to the United States to work at the Wall Street Journal and then the New York Times. And so uh, he has a piece in our upcoming July-August issue, which we closed this week and which we will try to put up early, um, a... um, I wouldn't call it a political obituary. I wouldn't call it a requiem. I'm not sure what I would call it, but an evaluation of Benjamin Netanyahu's 12 years as as prime minister and his political career in general. Uh, And so uh, given his uh, long experience uh, and the the existence of this really wonderful piece, which we I hope to let you be able to read soon at commentarymagazine.com, where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe. Uh, this is one that uh, is will be well worth the subscription fee. Uh, uh, Brett, yesterday uh, it happened. Naftali Bennett, uh, Bibi's one-time protege, uh, then his implacable enemy someone who was counted uh, for dead uh, in 2019 after an election in which his party did not even make it into the Knesset, did not make the cutoff, which I think is three and a half percent of the yeah. uh, of the vote. So uh, is now prime minister of Israel um, in the weird <laughs> dynamic of the politics in Israel. And so, uh, of course, what, what this raises is this question of what is... Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's legacy, that legacy may not be over. This is a very jury-rigged government, and uh, he is the leader of the opposition, uh, BB. And, um, you know, if you were a betting person, you would probably put 50-50 odds on the possibility that he would once again be prime minister, actually. But he has now come to the end of this 12-year tenure. And uh, what are your thoughts, as we say? Well, the usual caricature of... um caricatures, plural, of Netanyahu tend to be uh, wrong. Um, He's a hawk's hawk, actually. He was a fairly prudent, cautious steward of um, uh, Israeli uh, power. Um, Another caricature is that he lasted in in office surely by force of uh, demagogy. Uh, I think the reality is that he was uh, remarkably effective and particularly effective in addressing sort of middle of the road Israeli issues when it came to uh, especially the economy um, and and uh, uh, security issues. Um, he, you know, there's a view that he was going to make Israel, he was going to further isolate Israel in the eyes of the world. That might be true on the campuses of Brown and Columbia, but the, the, the reality is that Israel's diplomatic horizons all widened uh, dramatically under his uh, uh, under his stewardship. So uh, he was a very effective prime minister. There's a reason he lasted not just those these last 12 years, but in total 15 years in in, in high office, which uh, exceeds exceeds Ben Gurion's record. But the other side of it, John, is that he, I think, in a way that's quite natural in politics, um, accreted power to the point that politics have become extremely personalized in Israel. And that's, um, that's ultimately uh, damaging, uh, damaging to his own political chances, damaging to Israel. And he was a very polarizing figure. And, you know, what, what is it, what is the glue that holds this coalition together? The coalition that runs from merits on the far left to an Islamist party and a national religious uh, uh, party, it's um, distaste for Bibi, personal distaste for Bibi. So it's a mixed legacy, but um, I think it's a much richer and more complex and more interesting one that you'll get from uh, 
some of the dime store analysis that I've seen in the last few weeks. I mean, I think you make a point that is so important to stress. I have a column in the New York Post today uh, on, on, the, on, the, uh, on the end of this phase of the Netanyahu era, let's say, and I make it too, which is that he, um, uh, there have effectively now been three conflicts, war-like, battle-like, whatever conflicts, uh, in the course of this 12 years with Hamas in Gaza. And that is it. Uh, one in 09, one in 14, one just a month ago. And um, in fact, uh, at any point over the course of these 12 years, Israel could have been far more martial, far more belligerent and far more offensively driven to do something about the trouble uh, from the rockets in Gaza. And in fact, preemptively about the gigantic cache of rockets in Lebanon held by Hezbollah on the Northern border. And uh, Bibi, far from being a warmongering, uh, you know, bloodthirsty belligerent, um, has been a restraining force on more martially ambitious or more, I mean, I think it's an arguable point and you make it in your piece, you know, that that he's, ki- he's basically spent 12 years kicking the Palestinian can down the road. Uh, but the pressures on him in his own political coalition were probably to be more aggressive, not less, and that he restrained that, he restrained that um, drive uh, on the right, while being given absolutely no credit for the restraint that he showed by Israel's vanishingly small left. Right, and and um, I mean, look, I interviewed him uh, on the cusp of his taking power in 09. Um, I, I remember the interview happened at one o'clock in the morning, uh, just after the ceasefire from the 09, op- 08, 09 operation, which, which actually took place under Ulmer. Right, I'm sorry. Um, that's right. Uh, there was another, so he's only had two. No, because there was a war in 2012. Oh, you're, well, you're, you're, right. You're, sorry, you're right I got my timeline all off. Your, right. Okay. Your dates are a little okay. off. Okay. Yeah. And he was in that interview very critical of Olmert, saying, you know, the right goal would have been at a minimum to seal Gaza off from its supply of weaponry coming from Iran and elsewhere, but that the ideal goal was regime change. That was BB in 09. And for a variety of reasons, he um, retreated from his own stated goals because I think he's actually, as you point out, a, a much more uh, cautious um, uh, practitioner of power politics than, than the usual idiot criticism uh, suggests. Part of this goes back to his experience in the army, uh, BB came out of the special forces. Obviously, his like his brother, like Ehud uh, Barak, he was uh, he was a commando, Sayer Matkal, and he's always had a distrust of what he calls big army. That big army does not achieve uh, real successes. That what you can really do is achieve. You can accumulate tactical successes in a way that has a strategic impact. So in Syria, um, as Gadi Eisenkot, the former chief of staff told me, Israel has actually conducted not, not scores, not hundreds, but thousands of strikes in Syria that have made it effectively impossible for Iran to establish, to turn Syria into another Lebanon, which is what the Iranians were trying to do. But all of this has more or less gone under the radar. Uh, Israel has conducted a very successful counterinsurgency campaign in tandem with the government of uh, uh, Sisi in Egypt, in the Sinai, again, under the radar. And then there's what has to be counted as the most successful covert ops campaign, not just in Israeli history, but possibly in all history, as far as I I can think of, which is against Iran. But these were strikes that always sort of fell below the line of inviting retaliation or massive international condemnation. And that's the way in which he has 
uh, operated. And I think it remains to be seen whether history will remember that style of operation as just being sort of tactically clever, but strategically unwise, or whether in fact it was the best option available to any Israeli leader and that it did in fact buy Israel the time that it needed to become stronger, better defended and more capable of launching large wars when it, when it might have to. Um, yeah. So of course, what, what, how, go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah, that's, I just have a sort of question about that because I, I agree with the assessment of um, BB as someone who has successfully um, kicked several cans down the road and that this is um, largely a, a good thing or perhaps sort of the only possible good thing um, that, that he could have done almost except in the case of Iran. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's, it's bad necessarily, but I think it's, it's one thing to sort of put the Palestinian issue on ice um, and manage it in a way. Um, and I think that, that, that was uh, very profitable, but I, but the issue with Iran is that there's a window for striking or there was a window for striking, or there may be another window for striking or there may not. And uh, kicking the can down the road in that respect um, is is more complicated, and and I guess the, you know the, the jury is sort of out on that. Yeah, it's well, difficult. Th it's difficult to know, right? I mean, uh, in 2010, when he, within a year of his prime ministership, he was very keen to strike. He and at the time his defense secretary Hud Barak argued very forcefully with for it within the Israeli security cabinet. They were stymied by um, the head of Mossad at the time, Meir Dagan, the chief of staff, Gabi Ashkenazi, um, and actually the president, uh, Shimon Peres, who said, who all believed it was a, a terrible idea that Israel would strike, would uh, diminish, but not stop Iran's attack and would rally Iranian people to the side of the regime. That was that was the contrary view. And Bibi, for internal political reasons, wound up having to submit to that judgment because you know one point to make here is Israel's not a presidential system, and decisions of that magnitude are decisions that are made not just by the prime minister but are in the hands of of the of the inner cabinet. Just to tell an anecdote, uh, you and I had lunch maybe 2010, 2011, and we made a bet. You may not remember this, Brett. We made a bet. You said they were, you said Israel was going to strike and was going to strike in six months. And you said so on the basis of, you know, on the basis of uh, far more inside information than I had. And that I said, I didn't think it was going to happen. And that the whole point was that, uh, there was a kabuki game in which Israel was trying to get us to do it by saying, by Bibi saying, hey, uh, you know, Barack Obama, I am just crazy enough and lunatic enough and hate you enough to do this. And you'll get blamed for it if, you know, you'll, everyone will assume that America gave me the green light and you'll get blamed. So maybe you, America, should strike Iran because you know you can do it. You know you've got bunker busters. You've got stuff that can destroy Natanz and and uh, and and everything else, all the nuclear sites. And I don't really, but I'm going to do it unless you do it. And that was my my thought was that there was a, a shadow game going on, but um, but I know this to be I the do, case. I don't remember that bet. Uh, do you okay. remember what what we bet? We bet, like a we bet like a hundred dollars, and I uh, never made good on that. And bet. you never well because of course because of course only now. Only now is the bet now. Uh, well, I think you said six months. So, but I for so, so just it's for okay. Record, so, so it's this is your I, I'm collecting now. I'm collecting my, now my by pointing out that I won the bet. Is worth a hundred dollars. <laughs> That's hand. right. Well, but I'm I, admitting I, my yes. fee. Uh, <laughs> I have a question though about this because this actually provides a really useful context for the remarks that. Netanyahu made last, uh, I think, what, last night, yesterday, about uh, which were very combative and directed directly at Biden and his administration thinking about reviving the Iran deal. And I wonder, given this context, was was that just, you know, the angry guy on his way out just having the last word? Or was there a true, was he trying to send a different message in the context of what, John, you were saying earlier he was doing with Obama? 
mean, they were pretty, pretty straightforward. He was pretty straightforward about where the loyalty of Israel will lie in the case of Iranian future Iranian threats or the danger. Yeah. Well, you know, I, one thing I very... wanted to mention, uh, Brett, to to add on to that, because I think in context, um, uh, there was a real ideological partisan divide in in Israel about the efficacy of force in the '90s onward. That force was a force was a problem. That it all force of any kind against the Palestinians or whatever. That this very martial country, nonetheless, had come to the limits of its ability to use force positively. And one of the things that Bibi has happened as a result of Bibi's tenure, uh, aside from the wholesale destruction of the Israeli far left as a political force, is that there is now a total consensus within the country, as far as I know, about the need for extreme, for confrontation with Iran, for the prevention of Iran, prevention, degradation, whatever, of Iran's nuclear program, and I think absolutely no hesitancy on the part of anybody who thinks that uh, for a political future in Israel on the notion that Israel needs to defend itself against rockets from Gaza. I'm not sure that absent Bibi's tenure, that uh, that would be that he changed, he, the Overton window, as we say, shifted dr dramatically in favor of the efficacy of force when in Israel we they were sort of going in an Americanized direction in the 90s. Well, I think it's more it's it's okay. more complicated. There's no question the Overton window has shifted in Israel. Um, by the way, Andy Kessler has a very funny column in the Wall Street Journal on on using terms like Overton window. Which <laughs> That's true. I shouldn't have done. Normal that. human beings watching this uh, means the range of acceptable opinions, I guess, would be a, a way of describing the, the quote-unquote Overton window. Um, so yes, there is a remarkable political consensus almost across the spectrum in Israel about issues like that. My own view is that it predates um, Bibi uh, or Bibi's return to power. It is the result, first of all, of the second intifada, which disabused Israel of the idea that there was a viable Palestinian peace partner. Um, and it was the result of disengagement or withdrawal from Gaza in 2004 and five, which provided a, a demonstration to the average Israeli of what it means when you withdraw from territory. You don't get more peace. You don't get credit for taking risks for peace. What you get is a little terrorist entrepot bent on your destruction that would replicate the exact same experiment in the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria when given the opportunity. Now, with respect to, to Iran, the real debate is, a, is, is not about whether Israel needs to do everything it can to stop Iran. The question is how. And Mayor Dagan's serious point in back in 2010 was that covert operations could do more and more effectively retard and ultimately dismantle Iran's, um, Iran's uh, nuclear infrastructure than a military strike because Iran is not Iraq of the 1980s. It's not just one site that has to be destroyed with one flight of F-16s. It's a much larger, much richer, much more sophisticated country that has its own indigenous infrastructure and that a strike wasn't going to work. And in the meantime, you might add that in the 10 or so intervening years, Israel now has two squadrons of F-35s, which can penetrate Iranian air defenses. It has a much more sophisticated understanding of the Iranian nuclear program. And it, and it, and it achieved the most incredible intelligence coup, I can't wait to see, um, someone needs to make a movie about this, how they were able to seize, uh, uh, what was it, 53,000 documents and 163 disks detailing the entire Iranian nuclear program, therefore persuading the Trump administration to withdraw from the JCPOA, an extraordinary thing. So anyway, getting back to Net Netanyahu, whether this view was forced on him or he or he uh, essentially made it his uh, made it his own, it's part of a legacy of of a successful track record in 
defying Israel's enemies, standing up to Israel's phony friends in the West. And those are achievements that stand in his credit. The other side of the ledger, however, is what we saw the other day in the Knesset of a nasty, churlish, embittered, polarizing uh, figure who thinks that he is the one exception to the idea that graveyards are filled with indispensable men. Okay, I want to get back to this, but first, uh, the successor to Netanyahu is Naftali Bennett. If you want a really great look at Naftali Bennett, at who he is, where he comes from, how his mind works, and what he has to say, please go and subscribe to Dan Senor's post-corona podcast. Dan's most recent podcast this week is not the one with Naftali Bennett. Uh, This is one about the recovery of New York and real estate in the series of podcasts he's been doing about what life will be like once uh, we have, as we are on the very verge of, you know, have defeated the virus. Uh, The one the previous week uh, is an interview that he did at the 92nd Street Y with Bennett three or four years ago. Uh, Bennett, as people know, uh, was educated like Bibi, oddly, in the United States, Bibi in Pennsylvania, Bennett in New Jersey. He's a graduate of a of an Orthodox day school in New Jersey, um, or uh, at least an elementary school in New Jersey. Um, and um, and so he um, and uh, you know is a is a, a guy who came out of tech, who made money in tech, uh, and then went into politics uh, as a as I said, as a as Bibi's uh, protege, and then uh, ran, got crosswise of Bibi and Bibi's wife Sarah, who is a uh, worth a an eight. I mean, you know, an eight podcast mini series all to herself. Um, and, uh, and, and here he is uh, uh, now uh, the, uh, on, on the one hand, an extraordinarily weak uh, prime minister, given the fact that uh, they have a one seat government with a one seat margin and he himself only has uh, seven seats in his party. On the other hand, very powerful because um, uh and he, and he can, you know, the whole thing can collapse because he will hold the line. So who knows? We have no idea. This is an incredible political experiment that's going on. Really, this is a great podcast. Dan Senor's post-corona with Naftali Bennett. Apple, Stitcher, Google Play. Go subscribe. Go listen. And you can also then listen to the a really interesting uh, Will New York's Real Estate Recover podcast, as well as, well as previous ones, including a couple with me. So that is the, that is post-corona. Now let's talk about this Knesset session yesterday, uh, which was um, even by the standards of the rowdy, you know, informal, crazy policies of the Knesset, um, uh, really repulsive. (laughs) It was extraordinarily repulsive. Bennett is sort of making his maiden speech. I mean, he hasn't yet become prime minister, but He's about to be, he's giving a speech in which he pays tribute to his rivals. He pays tribute to Netanyahu and all this. And in this room, if you watch, um, uh, just people are just yelling, screaming out, screaming at him. I mean, it's all in Hebrew. So if you don't understand Hebrew and I don't really understand Hebrew, it just, it looks even worse than than, than it was apparently. Um, but, um, you know, uh, Bibi was sitting there with a mask on uh, which was very, I think, politically intelligent and prudent because, of course, then, you know, no one was going to focus on his expressions. But the behavior of his party, the behavior of his coalition, and then Bibi's own uh, really uh, low-rent, uh, you know, condemnations of, of Bennett, you know, saying that Bennett had perpetrated the greatest electoral fraud in Israel's history, not in the Trump sense, in which he claimed that votes were stolen, but because Bennett is posing as a right-winger when he's really a far left-winger um, which is demented, uh, and and Bibi doesn't even believe it's true. He's just saying it for effect. Um, you know, it was unbecoming. Would you say, Brett? Yeah. Well, it was. Look, Bibi has always had a demagogic streak. Um, that's always been part of the Bibi toolkit. He said it in 2015 when he was suddenly afraid he might lose the elections and he screamed, oh, the Arabs are coming out in droves or something like that. He was playing footsie with a Kahanist party uh, back in, in 2019. He, 
He pleaded for a pardon for a, uh, a soldier who had really violated the laws of war by murdering a, a, a neutralized Palestinian terrorist. So that's, that's part of the Bibi problem. And, and this gets to my, my essay, John, which is that there is a real ugliness to Netanyahu. I experienced it personally many, many years ago in a very small way. Uh, when I was editor of the Jerusalem Post and he called me up to berate me ostensibly because we had run an op-ed referencing a well-known incident in his political life when he'd gone on TV to admit to an extramarital affair and, and claim he was being blackmailed. And he called me up and he said, you know, my children read English, you know, how dare you publish this stuff? And, and really what he was trying to do was tell me I should be his patsy. And that is, that is an aspect to his personality. Even his own father, Ben Sion, had uh, very little good to say about him when interviewed on the subject of his prime minister's son back in, in the 1990s. So jostling with this first-class intelligence, this profound sense of what a prime minister, an Israeli prime minister can do given the cards he's handed is... Um, this other uh, um, Mr. Hyde creature who um, is nasty, insincere, drives people away, um, uh, is, is jealous of his political powers, is a very unpleasant person. You know, you can, you can he sometimes meet Bibi in public settings, he can be quite charming, but in private, he's, he's often something, something else. And, um, I think as Vivian pointed out in, in her essay in, in, in commentary, there's a King Lear uh, um, quality to this. He has, he has been the instrument of his own undoing. When you think about the coalition that's opposing him, okay, uh, the guy who's replacing him was his right-hand man. The guy who stuck, who, who will never sit with him, Avigdor Lieberman, another former right-hand man. Benny Gantz was the man he made IDF uh, uh, chief of staff. Yidon Sar was someone he brought into the Likud as a talented young protege. Together, these guys represent 28 seats in the Knesset. If he had simply not pissed off these guys as much as he did, and I, 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 can I use that word on a comment? Yes, you can. Okay. Yes. He had an, uh, uh, enraged these these ideological, more or less allies, Benny Gantz is maybe a little more centrist, right? He would be running a right-wing Likud and right-of-center coalition. All he would have needed was to buy off uh, Shas or, or the other uh, you know, uh, ultra-Orthodox party, and he'd be fine. So, so what he's railing against, and, and you, as you said, it was an extraordinarily ugly, petty, uh, pathetic scene, what he's really railing against is his own ability to create a coalition by treating people with a modicum of respect, by not allowing uh, his wife to mistreat his own, his own political uh, allies, um, and, and by also having in view the fact that he's not going to be prime minister forever and he needs to nurture potential successors. So I'm going to talk about briefly about the near term, which you allude to here. Okay, um, before you so do that, Noah, before sure. you do that, let me just... Um, uh, tell you guys that, um, you know, one of Bibi's great strengths was um, his stewardship of the Israeli economy, which we can get to a little later. Um, the American economy is obviously wildly complex and, uh, and, and very hard to understand. And a lot of things are going on with it. And I rely, as you should rely, on DividendCafe.com, daily newsletter produced uh, over the internet by the Bonson Group uh, and our friend David Bonson, who's been a guest on the podcast, who runs the Bonson Group, which has $3 billion under management by Coastal Financial Management and Services Firm. Uh, David uh, is one of the most uh, literate, expansive, and interesting uh, daily analysts of how the markets are moving, where interest rates are going, uh, where the bond market is, and produces this five-day-a-week uh, product, DividendCafe.com. You can go and subscribe to, um, get it uh, at night. You'll understand what happened during the day, and you will see larger trends. David is a particular believer that a lot of people are getting 
the inflationary threat uh, provided by Biden wrong and our, our, our misunderstanding where we are in relation to inflation. This is a very important view, uh, in part because it's a minority view, but, and as we know many, many times in, in when it comes to the economy, uh, if you don't listen to the minority view and you only listen to the conventional wisdom, you are gonna get everything wrong. So that's dividendcafe.com from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry. Noah, please. Yeah, so Brett, you allude to the presumed fragility of this coalition, which is doing a lot of work in the American press, if you survey the, the media landscape, they assume that Naftali Benef will moderate his center-right views, um, both as a result of his effort to keep his, his centrist coalition together and also pressure from Washington. They, you know, they note that Joe Biden took all of two hours to give him a call, where it as it took him a whole month to reach out to um, Netanyahu. They have this uh, pre-existing relationship. But from everything you're saying, both owing to Israel's broadened geopolitical horizons and the stewardship of the economy, um, that we should probably expect more continuity than anything else, in part because it's hard to ignore Washington's waning influence over Jerusalem, go for good reasons, for the fact that it has all these broader horizons, right? But the notion here that we should expect any sort of moderation from this coalition seems to me predicated on a series of wishes fathering that thought. Well, I mean, the fact is that even Yair Lapid, the supposed leftist uh, in the coalition, would be, um, you know, somewhere, would sit very comfortably in the commentary podcast in any kind of conversation about Israel. Where, he, <laughs> where, 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 where Yair runs left is on social issues, which actually kind of square with our own sensibilities as... Uh, Televivian hawks. Let me put it. Let me. Let me. <laughs> socially, in 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 the Tel Aviv sphere, and 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 uh, and are you know politically maybe further uh, uh, further to the right. It's going to be very difficult to run any kind of government of the kind you have now, uh, for the obvious reason that. Um, any one MK can bring the government down, right? And so every MK essentially holds a Trump card uh, and can hostage the government to some, some wish, right? Some, some demand. On the other hand, I seem to remember in graduate school, there is a theory of coalition governments that coalition governments that are sort of one seat majorities tend to be oddly stable or at least have a longevity because they also know that anyone who pulls the plug is pulling the plug on their own grip on power. So what we're gonna get is a sort of a shambolic continuity government until there's some new, I think, con constellation of forces. But I, 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 wouldn't, I don't think it's, it's absurd to assume that there will be in fact the rotation that Naftali Bennett will serve out his two years before uh, Yair Lapid does. Now with respect to policy with the United States, there is, as John was alluding to earlier, there is a broad Israeli consensus that is just simply totally out of touch with what passes for the uh, smart view of Israel in Washington think tanks and much of, much of the State Department. Israel is not going to withdraw from the settlements. Israel is not going to repeat the misbegotten experiment, well, arguably misbegotten experiment, at least um, how shall I put it, um, teachable experiment in, in uh, Gaza and do something like that in the West Bank. Israel is not going to suddenly make peace with Hamas. It's not going to change its view about, uh, about Israel. It's not going to become a socialist country again. You're going to get, roughly speaking, continuity with, I think, changes at the margin in terms of the way you know, Israel allocates capital, uh, deals with religious parties and social, uh, uh, social issues. Uh, Naftali Bennett, I interviewed him at length for the Wall Street Journal in 2015. His, what I remember is he once analogized the Palestinians to a um, soldier friend of his who had taken shrapnel in his behind and surgeons had determined that it was safer to keep the shrapnel in the body than 
to extract it, a kind of a James Garfield situation, better just leave the bullet in. So this is, the, this is his view. Again, I am repeating, this is Bennett's view told to me in an interview. And the idea that he is a left, left winger is, is so patently absurd um, that even, I mean, it's a good thing Bibi was wearing a mask because he must have been laughing as he said it. Well, you know, uh, here's what's important about Bennett, by the way. First of all, he is the first Orthodox prime minister of Israel. Israel is, uh, you know, 73 years old and supposedly this horrible leftist is a, as we say, from, from birth, uh, Orthodox person. Um, he is uh, what is generally thought known as a as a nit kippah orthodox guy, meaning that he is uh, he is not Haredi. He is not uh, he does not hew to the sort of nineteenth, eighteenth, seventeenth century habits of Polish Jews and uh, and sort of millenarian concepts of uh, trembling before God. Um, it's a it's a it's a different standard, but he himself is a religious practicing religious Jew. Um, Bibi was not. I think he you know he he pays proper obeisance, but um, based on my personal experience of him at certain points in the 1980s, not only was he then as a young obnoxious guy around Washington, uh, not only was he not religious, he was sort of you know uh, anti-religious, like uh, annoyed by religion in a certain very high Ashkenazi, uh, Ashkenazic elitist fashion. And now, of course, he is, he is, the, he is the great defender uh, of, of the religious. But uh, when we say religious in this context, it's very important for people who do not understand the, are, are inclined to liken Israel to American politics that uh, the ultra-Orthodox Jews play a wildly different role there from evangelical Christians and the Christian right uh, in the United States. They are an interest group that uh, relies, depends on, and hungers for government largesse uh, and, and for um, special, essentially consciously affirmative action laws that benefit their own people in the way that they view it, including um, the privilege of not serving uh, in the army, lots of welfare benefits and control over certain aspects of the Israeli economy in the form of rules governing uh, restaurants, marriage, and other forms of civil life. And uh, and all of this may sound very minor, but it's very major uh, in that context. And so uh, you got to be careful when you hear people say. You know, be you know uh, the religion. You know who's religious in Israel and what the religious stand for in Israel, and try to think of that in the American context, where of course uh, it's a, it's an entirely different kettle of fish. Uh, let's just say, um, and uh, and one of the interesting dynamics is that uh, a week ago, uh, nine days ago, Meretz, the far left party said uh, there was an agreement as they were going through all these negotiations uh, that the new government would expand LGBTQ rights. Uh, and the, here's why this is not gonna happen. Because the Islamist party, the first Arab party, consciously Islamist party to participate in Israeli politics as part of the government run by Mansour Abbas, insisted as a condition of going into the government that this condition of merits is be dropped. In other words, the, the Ram party, they did not want an expansion of gay rights in Israel. Yeah, someone, someone tell the, uh, the someone tell the, the BDS people um, yeah. about this, this, this oddity. Yes, this oddity that in fact, it's the Islamists that killed the expansion of gay rights in Israel, which is already, by the way, the only country in the Middle East that um, extends extends gay rights uh, and 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 has and has provisions defending uh, defending gay rights. Um, there was a bizarre tweet a couple of days ago from a trans activist named Charlotte Clymer, saying that you know uh, people are doing wrong to you know to support Israel over Iran because Iran would uh, you can get. Somebody told her apparently that Iran's government will pay for transgender surgery, which I think is true in that they will cut people's members off while they're hanging from a crane while they're being 
slowly strangled to death for the crime of being gay. I mean, I, you know, uh, that that may be the one way in which you can get government health care that would that would change your gender. Um, but this is the kind of thing that people in this country now think and that get, gets gets kind of like echo chambered by social media. It's demented and insane. And yet she's a significant player in this conversation in social media, Charlotte Clymer. I don't know what to say uh, more about that. So before I say anything more about anything, uh, let me talk to you about our friends at Quip. Quip, the toothbrush people, they're now making a mouthwash, okay? So, you know, fill in the blank, brush, gloss, then if you don't say rinse, you may not be getting a complete clean because mouthwash is a key part of your whole mouth's health because it gets between teeth to kill bread, best germs and help strengthen enamel. And those oral care experts at Quip created a super simple way to make mouthwash a part of your daily oral routine. Uh, so here's what they've done. Uh, they, they've got a new refillable dispenser, a new mouthwash to help you keep your clean, delightful dispenser to use and sleek enough to fit on any bathroom counter. The mouthwash kills bad breath germs, helps her in cavities, leaves you feeling fresh. They're four times concentrate, has fluoride, xylitol, and CPC, but they left out the artificial colors and stinging alcohol you'll find in a lot of other rinses and the refillable dispenser's compact footprint will fit in any bathroom, big or small ad. And with five colors and two high-end finishes to choose from, you're guaranteed to find a dispenser that matches your style. You don't have to hide this mouthwash under the sink sitting on your counter. It's a beautiful reminder to rinse every day in a subtle way of letting everyone know that your oral care game is next level. So along with mouthwash, Quip also delivers fresh brush head, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months from $5. Shipping is free so you can save money and skip the hustle and bustle of in-store shopping. Pair that mouthwash with a per perfect with a perfect finishing touch with the Quip electric toothbrush for adults and kids and one of those refillable flossers, and you'll be surprised at how easy and fun it can be to keep your whole mouth healthy. You add that mouthwash refill plan, make sure your rinse never runs out with a customizable subscription. You can get refills automatically delivered straight to your door every three months. So go to getquip.com slash commentary right now. Excuse me, getquip.com slash commentary five. The number five after the word commentary. Right now, you can get $5 off a mouthwash starter kit. That's $5 off a mouthwash starter kit, which includes a refillable dispenser and a 90-day supply of Quip's four times concentrated formula at getquip.com slash commentary five, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash commentary five, Quip, the good habits company. Uh, okay, so... Um, I had poo-pooed this before, but Noah wanted to talk a little NATO. And I figured, yeah, let's talk a little NATO. We had uh, we had uh, NATO meeting. We had uh, uh, Biden in Britain uh, saying that the, that the queen, uh, who is, I think, 16 years older than he, reminds him of his mother, uh, which is weird. Um, not that, I mean, it's very weird. <laughs> Seems to me for a man who's, 78 to say that a 93-year-old woman reminds him of his mother, but nonetheless. Uh, Noah, please. Um, only insofar as it tickles many of my fancies, um, the updated 2030 um, mission statement that they're discussing here inv involves a lot of areas of operations that I think are incredibly important, among them low Earth orbit, um, which I could get into in a lot of very boring detail, but nevertheless has been um, dismissed by the smart set as being sort of a fixation of people who are, you know, just obsessed with weaponizing everything or are, you know, Star Trek nerds or stuff like that, um, which is really obnoxious considering the number of dual use platforms in orbit already in anti-satellite operations by um, uh, peer competitors like Russia and China. But apparently, you know, judging from news reports, there's a fair bit of resistance from Europeans to the notion that they should operate out of theater, uh, including to, uh, to contain and deter Chinese aggression, which strikes me as ridiculous considering that we did the out of theater debate in 2001 and it was very decidedly uh, concluded that the theater of operations should expand in scope and be relatively global. Um, but also some dissatisfaction among America's European partners about the Biden administration's lethargy when it comes to confronting Moscow. 
um, which to me is uh, an ironic, although not an, an anticipated irony, but nevertheless ironic insofar as the Democratic Party had sort of managed to, uh, to frame itself as being um, the most hawkish towards, towards Moscow, the most un lacking in any willingness to equivocate or accommodate um, Moscow's ambitions. And what we're seeing now is quotes in the New York Times from experts saying the Biden, Biden administration is sleepwalking into a rapprochement uh, with, with Moscow that is entirely unwarranted and strategically foolish. Um, nice of them to sort of wake up to this now on the eve of this uh, of this summit, we've we've been here before, but the the, the um, predicate for this is this forthcoming summit between a bilateral summit between Joe Biden and uh, Vladimir Putin, which everybody's saying, ah, oh, you know, they're giving them the you know, too many too many rewards between the the allowing this Nord Stream pipeline to to uh, complete construction, which is a Moscow's objective, and this bilateral summit, which is sort of a diplomatic reward for bad behavior. The Biden administration is is seemingly abandoning its its hawkishness towards Moscow. Well, where have you been? There has been no Democratic Party that was ever hawkish towards Moscow in any <laughs> in any sense that a, that a Russia hawk would recognize as such, not in this century. Um, no, only and, domestically. Only The only issue with Russia is uh, that it, it became uh, our enemy uh, only because it seemed convenient to Democrats to say that Russia had played this role in electing Trump. But even our European partners, I don't recall anybody warmly greeting the Trump administration's objectively, empirically hostile efforts to contain Moscow's aggression and expansionist ambitions. Where, where was Berlin and all that? I mean, Central Europe is another thing. They're, they're a little bit more consistent, but where was Berlin? Where was Paris? Where was London? I didn't hear any of this from them. I mean, it's maddening because of course it, it everybody was gaslighting everybody from 2016 to 2021. Uh, Democrats said that the Trump administration was a cat's paw of Putin uh, while it was um, in policy terms uh, more hawkish and more confrontational than the Obama administration by a factor of 8 billion. Meanwhile, the Trump administration is being hawkish and, and confrontational and Trump is pretending that it isn't. Uh, and so um, uh, anybody who was simply trying to make a, a, a recognizable or steady argument about what was going on between the United States and Russia was living in a twilight zone of my, you know, miasmic confusion. Um, because we kept on this podcast and in the magazine, on the blog and everything, trying to you know, sort of tease out the strands of what was policy, what was analysis, what was, you know, kind of propaganda, and you just couldn't get anywhere. I mean, well, you, you, it, you couldn't. It, it's going to be interesting because if the Biden administration continues in this vein, Putin is definitely going to test Biden. Um, he's going to test the limits of this. Um, and I think the, the press, however reluctantly, um, we'll have to at least acknowledge that. Um, and it, it, so it will be discussed to some degree. And then naturally, we'll, we'll see what, what Biden does about it. Well, look, the, North, the, the, the pipeline itself was an early test of Biden, that yeah. if, you, if you believe that we need to be hawkish and confrontational toward the Russians, Biden failed. I mean, if, that, if, that, if you want to look at it that way, um, I think uh, with Trump gone, uh, any any passionate hunger to to be confrontational with Russians on the part of uh, anybody outside of 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 our kind of weird hawk community, which doesn't doesn't dominate the Republican Party either, um, you know, has no has no real force behind it. Um, this summit, this bilateral meeting between uh, between. Trump uh, between Trump between Biden and Putin is very odd if you think about it because the classic rule is you don't want to have a meeting unless you have an ask or you have a take like what do we want from him and what are we prepared to give and what is he prepared to give and what are we prepared to take and from what I can tell they seem to be going into this with nothing and expecting nothing and that's not good. 
uh, I mean, I, you know, it's whatever. It's good. It's not bad. I mean, who can, if nobody really cares, then it doesn't really matter. Except but symmetry in the is sense extraordinarily that, risky when you blow it. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> I mean, Vienna, nineteen sixty-one. Uh, Reykjavik, how many others do you have to count when, when, a, when a bilateral summit goes wrong? There are consequences. There are absolutely, con- right, that's right. So in historical terms, uh, the Cuban, you know, I mean, uh, there are, there, yeah, there are all kinds of weird things where the Russians, generally speaking, get messages from our behavior that we did not intend to send. Uh, that they are freer to do things than we are uh, than we are going to be comfortable allowing them to do. Let's just say, and then the world finds itself in a confrontational posture. It did not. We find ourselves in a confrontation that was unnecessary because they wouldn't have gone there had we not been foolish enough. Now, I think the diplomats of the Biden administration are not that feckless and stupid as to let that happen. But, you know, uh, the president who confuses Libya and Syria 16 times in the last four days and says the queen's like his mother, you know, he's going to have private time with Putin. Who knows what's going to come out of that private Well, time. and who, uh, have you noticed that the, the, the sort of the, the messaging about the upcoming summit has been very much like Biden's really studying. He's been studying so hard for this. He's really going to be prepared. It, it, it actually has the opposite effect that I think they intend and in that I'm not reassured. I feel like there's a kid cramming for his finals and will he make it? We don't know. <laughs> I mean, um, the, it's an auspicious journal- site as well. Geneva, um, yeah. which played host to a 1955 summit between the four great powers and was followed on the following year with the invasion of Hungary. Um, yeah, they uh, half a dozen other, you know, I- encroachments and in, um, in NATO's sphere, as it were, um, right. following the 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 ascension of West Germany into NATO. All this sort of stuff, you know, that follows on these things. We look back on in hindsight and say, oh yeah, okay, well because Kennedy was kind of weak in Vienna, the Berlin Wall went up, and you don't know it at the time, but you'll know it two or three years later. Right. Say Noah, are you still going to the post office? I think you are sometimes. Are you still paying full price for postage? Well, thanks to stamps.com, you don't have to anymore. Mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer. Send letters, ship packages, and pay less, a lot less. With discounted rates from USPS, UPS, and more, stamps.com saves businesses thousands of hours and tons of money every year. It brings the services of the US Postal Service and UPS right to your computer, a must-have for any business. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, a side hustle, Etsy shop shipping out orders, or just navigating our hybrid work life, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. No wonder one million businesses choose Stamps.com for their mailing and shipping. You simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get discounts up to 40% off post office rates and up to 66% off. UPS shipping rates, not to mention stamps.com, is a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stop wasting time going to the post office. Go to stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code commentary, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in commentary. That's stamps.com, promo code commentary, Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Um, also in that bilateral communication, not bilateral, the NATO, whatever that communication was that Noah's talking about, uh, the Wall Street Journal makes a point in an editorial this morning that it's calling on the WHO to investigate the lab leak hypothesis. Um, and the, and the journal rightly goes ballistic on the grounds that uh, one of the reasons that the lab leak hypothesis has been a year, I know has been buried for a year, is that the WHO um, is, has been a full participant in occluding and, and obscuring uh, Chinese responsibility for what went on uh, in Wuhan. Uh, any way you slice it, by the way, even if the lab leak hypothesis, it turns out to be untrue and it was a jump from an animal to a human, maybe at the wet market, uh, they, they all the evidence is that they knew that something really bad was coming and they hit it and the, and the WHO 
was part of a, a, an almost um, structured international effort to hide that fact from the world. Anybody got any thoughts on this? Only that, you know, we can call on the WHO to do anything, but um, to expect them to do it in a fashion that's any different from the way they did it before would be pointless because it's not, they, they've been, they've been, you know, uh, sort of blocking for China um, for a long time and not just on the, on the, on the wet market um, uh, issue, but um, sort of giving legitimacy to so many um, faulty practices uh, that, 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 that the, the Beijing has been up to throughout this. Um, so there's, there's, there, I mean, it would almost, it could almost be detrimental because what, what do you, you, what would we gain from a WHO inspection, uh, you know, report uh, on, on the lab leak theory that says, nope, definitely not, nothing here. Right. I mean, I was going to say it, it could have a very detrimental effect on, on uh, encouraging a narrative that we know to be false. And the other the context for this also should be an understanding that China has been extremely effective in its incremental approach to infiltrating global organizations like the WHO, finding the basis of power, using those levers of power against, say, the guy who heads the heads the WHO and really exerting a kind of um, influence over these global institutions that the United States has not been very effective at countering. And we need to think about that going forward and what we need to do to change that. There was a great piece at CommentaryMagazine.com by Hal Brands on this very subject uh, that is in, now I can't even remember. Was it in the June issue, in the May issue? I don't remember because I, I, I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. Um, but if you go to Commentary, if you go to Google, search Commentary Magazine and Hal Brands and China, uh, you can read this piece that goes into very riveting detail on China's infiltration. I mean, infiltration is the wrong word. China's understanding of the practical political value of its involvement with international organizations as a furtherance of their own possible foreign policy and influence aims. Um, it's, a, it's a very important point. Also a very important point I wanna make is that if you look at the New York Times today, uh, on its on the front page of its website, you will see the daily coronavirus report. Now that is a Sunday. The numbers on Sundays are always much lower in terms of cases and deaths because it's a Sunday and people don't report as much. And so the Tuesday numbers, the numbers that come out on Tuesday for Monday or Wednesday for Tuesday are often much higher. But the New York Times number today, this morning, is around 5,000 new cases and 141 deaths. And it's still um, valuable to compare to other Sundays, you know. Yeah. Because it, yeah. You know, right. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic is over. It is all but over. Uh, and, and now we are getting once again into gaslighting territory. I just want to end with this and ask you guys to think about it. Uh, Britain is now thinking of imposing another uh, couple of weeks of lockdown because it has a powerful a variant that is spreading uh, very, you know, like wildfire. Except the variant is spreading like wildfire among the unvaccinated. It is not spreading like wildfire among the vaccinated. And in the United States, again, if we see some kind of a surge over the summer or something like that, um, it is not going to be a surge among the vaccinated. It is only going to be a surge among the unvaccinated. And, and what, what is our public policy responsibility at this point and, and this point going forward, with the exception of small children who don't get the virus and don't die from the virus, as we now have you know, 15 months of evidence to suggest, but with the exception of small children who yet cannot be vaccinated, uh, anyone from the age of 12 upward in the United States can be vaccinated. Uh, 51 or 51 percent of the population is or it's i can't quite remember what the numbers are maybe 42.4 fully vaccinated according i'm sorry is that 43.4 the entire u.s population right okay Plus 12 12 and over is 51.3 for the fully vaccinated right. 62 okay for just one so so here's my point do we have any public policy responsibilities toward the unvaccinated at this point? Well, first of all, yes, we do. We, we burden them with excessive uh, troubles, like, for example, um, the masking of children 
um, which is entirely unacceptable. I do not accept that premise. The threat posed by COVID to children under the age of 12 is less than a standard flu season. If you account for uh, hospitalizations and deaths, the fear now is that they'll get it, but they'll trans, you know, they'll transmit it to somebody else. And what we're doing by expressing that concern, by making that the condition in which we're all living in, um, we're treating uh, children under the age of 12, not like little beings who require you know, affectionate environments in which to thrive. We're treating them like a threat, like a risk. And, and, and creating a psychological condition around that for the people who we now know 100% are, have no capacity to gauge relative risk, that they are it's, unable the, to do that. The responsibility <clears throat> to the unvaccinated was fulfilled with the creation of the vaccine. That was the responsibility. They don't want it. If they don't want it, we're done. Right. There was a I mean, in a weird way that we were yeah. able to accept yeah. in the status quo ante yes. that we no yeah. longer are. Yeah. In a weird way, it would be like saying that there is a general social obligation to people who drive cars who don't get licenses. I mean, in an odd way, it's like, well, we're all somehow we're all at risk from them because they could drive a car and smash into your car, which is why we have licenses. But then we don't. They don't have insurance. They are legally culpable for their own actions, uh, and they would have to pay for any damages uh, as people who drive without a license. That is not something that becomes a larger and more general social responsibility. And um, the other problem here is an incredible failure of our vaunted public health servants in trying to make clear to people that when you hear that on a cruise ship of 5,000 people, there are two breakthrough cases that according to what we've been told, everybody on the ship uh, was vaccinated. Two people tested positive who are asymptomatic. So number one, that's two out of 5,000, which is to say exactly, you know, I don't even know what percentage that is. Number two, you don't know for a fact that they were vaccinated. And number three, even if they were vaccinated, everybody else is vaccinated. Even if they were vaccinated and got a breakthrough infection, everybody else is vaccinated. And therefore, is it no risk of getting a breakthrough vaccination except by total happenstance? And the vaccine protects against breakthrough infections in the sense that it not only prevents you from getting the disease, but if you get the disease, it mitigates its effect radically. And yet what people hear is, oh my God, people went on cruise ships and they, and they, and they got, and they got COVID. So, you know, these people who are wandering around telling us that this public health is so important, this should be mission number one. Mission number one should be, no, you are not at risk from getting the virus once you get the vaccine or your, the risk level that you're at. It. The right. severity of the case that you have. Right. I mean, the well, likelihood that you'll it. get it is yeah. like 5%, according to the efficacy trials, it's probably but, a lot lower right. than that. But yeah. the risk of hospitalization and death is negligible. Right. And what is 5%? Like, it's also very important, you know, people, it's like one of those things where, you know, I don't know, every time you step out of your door, it's like one of those weird things where it's like, how, what's your risk of death over the course of a day anyway? I'm not sure it's 5%, you know, maybe 2%, but it's not negligible. You walk across streets, you, you, you know, you're in a car, you did, you're in a, you're, you're in circumstances in which the possibility, you know, if you were to disaggregate everything that you do and the risk factor that is present at any given moment, you're at risk of death. I mean, that's the odd part about being alive. But here's where uh, the conversation is shifting. Okay. It's less, there's more acceptance of what our premise is in the United States is within the US borders. But now the conversation is shifting more to, well, the pandemic is raging everywhere. Pandemics everywhere. Most places are not fully vaccinated. That's where they're gonna incubate these variants, which could very well evade the protections that we have in this, in this, uh, in these approved vaccines, which by the way, has almost no evidence to support it. Right. It's sort of an assertion that is just thrown out there in the ether and not backed up by anything resembling data. It's just sort of an emotional assumption that it could possibly be in the near future, some sort of a risk we might face. But so because the rest of the world is not immunized, we'll have to maintain these, these precautions and mitigation measures to the extent that they're still active in perpetuity until there's something approaching eradication abroad, which seems to me like 
very, uh, not only unlikely, but public policy based on neurosis. Right. Well, we're already, I, I think we've, we've already gone long beyond neurosis into some other realm in which um, uh, there is a bizarre bias against telling people the truth about the vaccines and the miracles that the vaccines represent. And also saying what I'm saying, which is that Biden can say, I want 70% of the country vaccinated by July 4th. Clearly that's not gonna happen. That number is probably not gonna be reached. Although you don't know, we could get to one shot by 70% with one shot by July 4th, perhaps. But at some point you have to say, the people who have done the right thing, gotten the vaccine, gone, you know, um, you are now free to do everything. And everybody, all the rest of you, you suck. Here's the do, problem. Go, do whatever you want now and the hell with you. So whatever happens to you, happens to you. Sei gesund. You know, that's, that's what's supposed to happen. Public policy course, yes. cannot, cannot embrace the effectiveness of entropy. They it needs everything needs to be act, uh, agency. So the most effective way of boosting vaccine rates was, was were state level lotteries, right? No, no. What really incentivized vaccination among the people who were still hanging out on the margins was the prospect of unmasking. It's evident in the data. Just returning to the status quo ante and giving people a license to resume their lives as as they were in 2019. That had had proven a real effective boost for vaccinations, get vaccinated, unmask. And there's, this is a problem on the right as well. The right is, is, is hostile to the even, even the prospect of checking vaccine status on a private level, not passports mandated by the state or the government or municipalities, but individual institutions checking that little vaccine card that I have yet to one time ever pull out of my wallet to demonstrate my vaccination status. Private ent entities enter in entering into social contracts, that's the sort of thing the right has a fear of too. And it's as much an obstacle as everybody on the left who says we have to mask up forever because of India. Basically, I just want to repeat 5,000 cases on Sunday and 141 deaths. And Anthony Fauci said that the uh, pandemic would be over when we hit 10,000 cases a day. So we have, we, we have a day in which we have recorded half of that. Where is he? It's, uh, we're, it's 11, 10 a.m. as I'm speaking on the East Coast. I don't, I, from what little I know, Fauci has not come out to say the pandemic is over. And if he does not do so by the end of the week, uh, everything that Michael Brendan Doherty says in his fantastic piece on Fauci on the cover of National Review, this this uh, this issue, uh, will will be uh, more tr uh, truer uh, than it was when he wrote it a couple weeks ago. So with that, thank you very much to Brett Stevens for joining us. Read his piece at CommentaryMagazine.com when we put it up on 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 the uh, on the second end of BB's career and maybe not the final end of BB's career. Uh, and for Noah, Christine, and Abe, I'm John Pop Keep the candle burning.